Now, I did, I went ahead and I passed out um, copies of the uh, Bible study methodology that we use, and you'll see why in a few moments. Um, but I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the time that we have that we can dig into your word. I thank you for the truth that is in your word. And Lord, I just pray this morning as we get in here that, we, that you will uh, reveal your truth to us, that you will enlighten it for us so that we can understand it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, our, we're continuing our sermon series called Jesus' Mission Continues. Um, let's see, can you click on the presentation to make sure we're there? Oh. Well, let's see, maybe my clicker's not working this morning. Maybe. Um, so this is uh, Jesus' mission continues, and we're looking at disciple-making in the early church so that we can understand what lessons we can apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, now, last week, one of our application points was to be disciplined in our Bible study. Um, this is not just reading the Bible, <clears throat> but studying the Bible. So going beyond just reading, but in trying to get down into the meat of what it is. Um, so... I talked a little bit about the Bible study methodology that I use, um, and I said that if you wanted more practice with that, we're going to be going through Ruth in our Wednesday night Bible studies um, at our house. We've done it a couple different times through a few different books in the Bible, both in Sunday school and in other Wednesday night Bible studies. Um, so I know that you, some of you have had experience with this, but this morning I wanted to take it a, a, a Sunday morning and work through it um, with this text. And so this is a, um, an introduction to, or maybe a refresher to, our, the CSA, which is the Context, Story, and Application Bible Study Methodology that I use. Uh, now, a couple of side notes. Uh, first, I realize that this method may not be very easy. Um, I think there are two reasons for this. First is that uh, this Bible study methodology is not text-specific. That means that somebody didn't go through and read the text and come up with application questions for us. This Bible study methodology can be taken and used in any text of the Bible. So since it's not text-specific, it is somewhat vague so that we can bring it to any part of the Bible and bring application to us for it. Um, another reason that I think that this is not easy is because anytime we study the Bible, it, there can be difficulties. Anytime we study the Bible, I think it is, it is spiritual warfare, and we're trying to combat the sin in our lives by studying Scripture. Our sin nature doesn't want to understand the, the Scripture. And so we're, com we're fighting against that. And so it is difficult anytime we're studying the Bible. Um, but I think with practice, this Bible study methodology does get easier. Um, secondly, this sermon's going to be a little different because we are following this um, outline for the actual sermon delivery. I don't normally like to do that because it's not much of a sermon, but more of a study. Um, so the flow is going to be a little different. Hopefully, it's not going to be too boring for you. Um, so our intro, the, the title is an introduction or a refresher to the CSA Bible study methodology. Um, and so our three points are, what is the context? How does it fit the story, the overall story of the Bible? So what is the context of this passage? The immediate um, the information right there that we can gain. How does it fit into the overall story of the Bible? That's how does it fit into the grand narrative? Because since Scripture is uh, cohesive, it, and we don't have just individual stories. They all fit together to tell one big story. And finally, how does this apply to a modern audience? So how does it apply to us? Um, also, last week, I said I don't like to read large chunks of text all at one time. 
but here we go again. Um, but before that, let me set the stage and remind you what has led us up to this point. And this can actually go under that first question, the context. Uh, so Paul is on his final leg of his second missionary journey. Um, in this second mission trip, he spent a lot of time in Ephesus and building the church there and growing relationships with the church leaders there. Then he traveled all the way into Greece before heading back to Jerusalem. Now, he's trying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, and he, doesn't, he didn't leave himself a whole lot of time for this journey. So as he's heading back, he wants to have one more meeting with the church leaders there at Ephesus. He's going to pass right by it. But instead of actually going to Ephesus, he stops at a town near Ephesus and calls the church leaders to him because he knows that if he goes into Ephesus, he's going to be tempted to stay longer and he might not make it to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And so he gives them a final speech, which we covered last week, and now he's continuing his journey back to Jerusalem. Go ahead to the next slide. So we pick up right there in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. It says, After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre. Since the ship was to unload its cargo there, we sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the, uh, through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to uh, continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. Continuing on, uh, verse 7 says, When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Continuing in verse 13, Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more, except the Lord's will be done. All right, so that's a big chunk of text. Like I said, I don't like to read those big chunks of text, but to get all that through, so that I wanted to get all that through so we can get into our questions. So our first set of questions fall under the context label, and we're trying to figure out what is the context of this passage. We're looking at who, what, when, where, and why. All right, the immediate context right around there. And so the first question in there is what immediate observations can be made from this passage? Right now, a little bit of this, the leading up, the context, I kind of gave you beforehand, talking about the, the events leading up to this. But when we read through this text, what immediate observations come to point? So as I was reading through, one of the first things I noticed, and the biggest thing that I noticed, is that Paul is being warned about dangers ahead in Jerusalem. But he's willing to face those dangers. That was kind of the, the big immediate observation that I had in that. So our next question is, what, uh, what questions are raised by the passage? So as we're going through, we're reading this, sometimes you read something and you kind of go, huh? What, what did the author mean there? Or why did they do that? that? Those types of questions. And so the question that I had was, uh, twice in this passage, prophets bring a warning from the Holy Spirit about the dangers that await Paul in Jerusalem. Was Paul going against the Holy Spirit and therefore going against God's will. 
So that was the question that I had. Since these prophets are coming and speaking through the Holy Spirit, is Paul going against God's will by continuing his journey to Jerusalem? So as I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm studying, and I'm praying through this. The answer that I get is no. Paul is staying true to his calling from Jesus. And we see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is Paul's calling from Jesus. It says, This man is my chosen instrument, who will take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul knew as soon as he was saved, Jesus told him that he will eventually suffer for Jesus' name. Now for Paul, it didn't take long to get to that suffering. Shortly after his, his salvation, he goes into the next city, and they're driving him out of the city. And city after city, the Jews are trying to kill him. He's thrown in, um, and he has to fight tigers, and, and all, everywhere he goes, it's, it's struggle after struggle and, and battle after battle. People are trying to kill him because of the name of Jesus and what he's doing. So for Paul, when he hears this warning going to Jerusalem, he knows that it's probably some meat to it. That's probably real because this is just the, the pattern that he sees everywhere he goes, but it matches that calling that he got from Jesus. So the next question leading from that, if God is not trying to stop Paul, why does the Holy Spirit warn Paul so much? So if, if God is not trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem, why do we have in this text two different occasions where prophets are speaking for the Holy Spirit, warning Paul about the dangers that await him. The answer to that is that this is a testament to to those who see Paul's courageous faith in Jesus. And see, without Jesus, Paul would have every reason to avoid Jerusalem with those dangers waiting for him. Well, if we think about it, without Jesus, Paul would probably still be a Pharisee persecuting the church. He would be one of those people who he is now being warned about He would be one of those people who is trying to kill believers, trying to defeat the gospel, trying to fight against the growth of Jesus' kingdom. But through Jesus, Paul is changed. And he doesn't fear that anymore. He doesn't fear the gospel anymore. He is changed through the gospel. And he doesn't fear that opposition because of the faith that he has in Jesus. Um, So our next question is, go ahead to the next slide. Our next question is, what would this passage have meant to the original audience? So we're talking about, we're trying to get into the mind of the original audience. So we think about who the author is. Can anybody tell me who the author is? Luke. Yes, Luke is the author, and he's writing to Theophilus. We read that in the beginning of this, uh, in the beginning of this book, and in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that Luke is writing to Theophilus, trying to get an account uh, trying to collect an account of Jesus' life and ministry and then the effect of Jesus' life and ministry. So that, that's where we get the two books from. The Gospel of Luke is Jesus' life and ministry. And then Acts is the effect, the after effect of Jesus' life and ministry. This is Luke writing to Theophilus trying to explain this. So we're trying to get into the mind of Theophilus to understand what he would have gotten from this. Right? So there are two big takeaways from this. <clears throat> First and most obviously, Paul's courageous faith is both an encouragement and a model for us to follow. For Theophilus, as he's reading this, Theophilus was not a Christian. As far as we can tell, he wasn't a Christian. And so he's seeing Paul, who was Saul, and now he's had his life completely changed. This is a story of a man whose life and his purpose was completely and totally changed. And because of his Savior, his new Lord, 
he has this amazing, courageous faith. <clears throat> and that is a model to follow. Also, another point in here is the navigational details that Luke includes in this passage point to the validity of the writing. So again, thinking about the original audience, right? these are people who would have known these routes that Paul is traveling. They would have known the seas that Paul is sailing through. People would have understood the struggles of those travels in that time. And so when Luke is including, especially at the beginning of this chapter, all those navigational details, it would have pointed to the validity of this story. When we read in upcoming chapters about storms in the Mediterranean Sea, that again is pointing to the validity there. Because when the, the navigation, again, the, 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 um, the sailing navigational details that Luke includes point to that validity. And then our, our next question, the last question in this section. So context, the last question in context is what timeless truth can be taken from the original audience's understanding? So first is that Jesus is worthy of faith more than just getting out of hell, right? Our faith in Jesus is more than just salvation because he is not just Savior. He is Lord and Savior. And when we call him Lord and Savior, then we have a, a new leader, a new ruler in our life. And that faith gives us courage to follow Jesus' commands. And the, another um, timeless truth we can take from the original audience's understanding is that Paul is going to Jerusalem to face the enemies of the gospel, to share God's love with them by sharing the news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now the Great Commission tells us to make disciples of all nations, starting with those right here in our city, and emanating out from that, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So we see that model in Paul, and we can apply it to our lives. So our next section of questions is the story section. And how does this passage fit into the overall story of the Bible? All right, so how does this passage fit into the overall story of the Bible? Now, we can get very general with this, and we talk about um, the, the grand narrative of Scripture and where it fits in there. Right? So this is obviously in the New Testament, so it's after the Old Testament. It is after Jesus' life, and it is at the beginning of the life of the church. It is a, it's a few years after the beginning of the life of the church. Paul has been traveling all around and building all these little churches. It's during this time that Paul is also writing a lot of the, um, the, the letters that we read throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul is writing a lot of those during this time. Obviously, this is before Jesus comes back. So there we kind of have a general understanding of where it fits into the narrative. But let's get a little more specific, and we want to know how does this passage, or truth, compare to other passages? So similar. How is this similar to other passages? All right, go ahead and give me another click. Um, and we see that, uh, well, I'm, I looked at this and I saw verse 13. It says, Then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And in that... We see similarity just in last week's speech that Paul gave. In last week, in chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And last week, when I was talking about that, I brought in another uh, text that was very similar. This is another one of Paul's writings. In Philippians 1, 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that right there is a pretty good summary of those, those first two um, verses. 
those first two passages. For Paul, his purpose in life is to spread the gospel. That's why he says, for me to live is Christ. His purpose in life is to spread the gospel. But he knows that if he dies, he's going to be in heaven. So he doesn't fear death. He knows while he's here, he has a purpose, and that is to glorify God. And in death, he has a purpose, and that is to glorify God through eternity. So there's the similarities. Now, our next question is, how does it contrast with other passages? Now, this is another one of those questions where I've gotten a lot of pushback from. I know this is Laurie's favorite question. (laughs) I get a lot of pushback because the Bible is God's inerrant word. That means it is without error. God's word is totally holy, uh, sorry, holy cohesive. That means it is one story all together. Holy cohesive. That's holy with a W, not holy starting with an H. So holy cohesive, and it does not contradict itself. So when we read, how does this contrast with the other passages? Well, we think, well, the scripture doesn't contradict itself. But contrast just means different. It does not necessarily mean contradict. It, is, it, it, it means, it, it, sorry, contrast means they are not the same. Right, so we can think of this as um, how does this te- how does this passage bring in harmony with other passages? Because we think when we think of harmony, right, you can't have harmony with just one note. If everybody is singing one note, that's not harmony. Right, but when you bring in other notes alongside that that complement that note, then we have harmony. And so in this in this question, we're looking for other passages that are um, different, but bringing in a separate voice to complement and supplement this passage. Now, this does also give us a good opportunity to talk about apparent contradictions in Scripture, places where it seems to be contradicting itself. And so it gives us the opportunity to dig down in and understand what God is trying to tell us in that, why that apparent contradiction is there, because we don't want to ignore them and try to sweep them under the rug, because the world around us sees those apparent contradictions And they're going to call us out on it. And if we just try to ignore them and sweep them under the rug, then we are not being intellectually faithful Christians. We're trying to ignore the hard parts of Scripture. If we're going to be intellectually faithful Christians, that means we're going to be faithful with our hearts, but also with our mind. We're going to study the Scripture and try to understand Scripture. Yes, it's mentally hard sometimes, but we are called to try to understand Scripture. So... as we're looking at this passage, and we're thinking, how does this contrast with other passages? I I found a contrast in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. So just earlier in this story, um, sorry, earlier in this trip, it says that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Sorry, this is at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. The passage that we're studying now is at the end of Paul's second missionary journey. So this is the beginning of that journey. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, first of all, what is the contrast? So in chapter 16, the Spirit is preventing them from going on and what they think God wants them to do. The Spirit is preventing Paul and Timothy from doing a certain act. But in chapter 21, the Spirit is not preventing them. He's merely warning them. So what is important for us to notice is that there is the difference right there. Is that in, the, in chapter 16, the Spirit is preventing them. In chapter 21, the Spirit is warning them. 
But see, this warning, I don't think this warning is here to discourage Paul from going on to Jerusalem. This warning is not here from the Spirit to try to talk Paul out of it. This warning is here to help Paul to be prepared. It's to help him to be ready for what awaits him in Jerusalem. Now we know, Paul said in chapter 20, so even before this passage that we're studying, Paul knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, that's going to start the events that eventually lead to his death. So he already knows this, but the Spirit is continually warning him. And they're warning him so that he can be physically, mentally, most importantly, spiritually prepared. And we can only be spiritually prepared if we are depending on the Holy Spirit, if we are depending on the gospel for every action that we do, if we're depending on Jesus and coming back to him through prayer. All right, so it's like um, an experience I had last summer. Um, Dustin and I, we went with uh, one of our cousins and her son. We went to the shooting range, and we're there, and we're having a good time. And her son was a young teenager, very skinny boy, and a very skinny boy, and I've got my shotgun, and you know I throw a few rounds down range, and I ask him, with his mother's permission, of course. I said, do you want to shoot it? And he said, and he looks at her like, am I allowed to? And she says, it's up to you. So he decides, yes, he wants to shoot the shotgun. Now I take him over and I give him some pointers and I, you know, show him a a good strong stance. And I tell him, I said, look, when you pull that trigger, the shotgun's going to have a lot of recoil to it. And it might hurt your shoulder a little bit. I was giving him a warning. I was warning him that it might hurt. It's going to, it's going to hit you in the shoulder. I wasn't trying to discourage him from doing it, but I was trying to let him be, I was trying to help him to be prepared. In the same way, here, the Spirit is helping Paul to be prepared. He's saying, this is going to hurt. Be ready because it's going to hurt. Be prayed up because there are some difficulties ahead. All right, so um, the Holy Spirit is not trying to prevent him, but just trying to help him to be prepared. Our next question is, what does this passage tell us about God's character? What does this passage tell us about God's character? And that is that God's plan is bigger than our plan. See, Paul knew that going to Jerusalem was eventually going to lead to his death. But he trusted God. He trusted God that his plan was bigger than what Paul could understand. Even though, yes, Paul was eventually martyred, he still, after going to Jerusalem, he still was able to take the gospel to Rome the political center of the known world at that time. He was able to take the gospel to Rome and witness to several more people and see more and more people saved, even after going to Jerusalem, knowing that it was eventually going to lead to his death. So we, the takeaway that we get about God's character here is that God's plan is bigger than our plan. And then uh, the last question in this section, so how does this passage fit into the overall story of the Bible? The last question here is how does this passage point to the gospel? I see this in two ways. This passage points to the gospel in two ways. Is that this passage points to the fallen, sinful condition of mankind. See, Paul was trying to help others to meet Jesus, but they didn't want to hear it. Paul is trying to introduce people to their creator and to their savior. Instead of accepting that, they rejected it and would try to kill Paul. However, through all of this, God was able to use Paul and see countless more saved. Secondly, the second way that this passage points to the gospel is that we know that through the gospel, our hope is not in this world. See, if Paul had set his hope in things of this world, he wouldn't go to Jerusalem because he knew that eventually that was going to lead to his death. The Spirit warned Paul that going to Jerusalem was eventually going to lead to his death. So if his hope was in things of this world, 
he would have avoided Jerusalem at all costs. But his hope was in the eternal life that awaited him in heaven, the eternal life that awaited him in glory, being reconciled with his creator and being reunited with Jesus for all eternity. So our hope is not in this world, but in a, but in a reconciled relationship with our creator through Jesus' sacrifice. So our last section of questions is application. So how does this apply to a modern audience? How does all of this apply to a modern audience? And the first question there is, how does this compare or contrast to my culture? Now, I like this question. This is one of my favorite questions because there's so many layers in this question. There's so many different ways that we can take this question. When we talk about culture, when we talk about my culture, right, this can be American culture. It could be Western culture. It could be modern culture. It could be Bible Belt culture. It could be the culture that we have built here at Victory Baptist Church. It could be my personal culture and how I live my life. It can be the culture of my family. So how does this compare or contrast to my culture? There's a lot of different ways that we can take this question. Now, I want to take a second and talk about our denominational culture. So the Southern Baptist Convention. In the SBC, uh, we often don't quite know how to relate to the Holy Spirit. I'm just, if we're being honest about it, we don't often know how to relate to the Holy Spirit. Intellectually, we know and we understand. Well, I'm not going to say understand. Intellectually, we know the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three unique persons, but all equally God. Not, not three gods, but one God in three persons. Like I said, not saying that we understand it, but we know it. And as a Southern Baptist, or Southern Baptist Convention, we recognize the Holy Spirit as part of God, but when we talk about relating to the Spirit, we're like, um, I don't know. How do we do that? Sometimes we treat the Spirit kind of like a weird uncle who shows up at the family reunion and then gets drunk and makes everything weird, right? That, that's, unfortunately, that's the way that we treat the Spirit sometimes. But the Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, equally God, yet equally distinct. Furthermore, as a denomination, we've almost entirely written Him off in how we relate to Him. So, this passage mentions prophecy twice. This passage mentions prophecy twice. Some, especially those in the SBC, would argue that the gift of prophecy is dead, and it died with the apostolic age. The gift of prophecy is dead, and we don't see prophets anymore in our age. Others would argue that the gift of prophecy continues. Now, we see this, I think, wrongly in the Catholic Church, where the, the Pope has the right when he you know, when he's sitting there, he has the right to pretty much speak for God and almost write new scripture. Now, they wouldn't use those terms in writing new scripture, but what the Pope says officially, the Catholic Church equates it with scripture. Now, I think that's taking the gift of prophecy too far and, and using it in the wrong way. But I think also when we look throughout scripture, we can't honestly say that the scripture says definitely that the gift of prophecy is going to end at the end of the apostolic age. So, where do I stand on that issue? I don't know yet. I know that I have to do a lot more reading and a lot more learning, especially outside of my own denominational history. I have to get outside of my comfort zone and try to understand how the gift of the Spirit is still working, if it is still working. Right. So the next question, I've kind of already delved into that. How does this impact my life? Well, 
I need to be more exposed to other church cultures and how they relate to the Holy Spirit. We've all seen it done in a way that does not glorify God, and people claiming that their actions are caused by the Holy Spirit. Again, we've seen that abused. But at the same time, to say that the Holy Spirit does not, um, doesn't cause us to act in certain ways, I think is also an abuse of our faith. But another way that this impacts my life is that when we look at Paul's life, especially this passage, it offers both a model and an inspiration for me. There will always be people around me who are hostile to the gospel, but there are also always people around me who are willing to accept the gospel. I'm going to say that again. There are always people around us who are hostile to the gospel, but at the same time, there are always people around us who are willing to accept the gospel, people who need to hear the gospel. Now, obviously, we all need to hear the gospel, but people who are willing to hear it and willing to have a conversation and willing to grow closer to God. So we can't let those people who are in opposition to the gospel stop us from sharing the gospel with those people who want to hear it, those people who are willing to accept it, and those people who are willing to grow closer to God. I shouldn't let my fear get in the way of my faith or my witness. Our next question, how does this passage apply to our disciple-making strategy? And this is another one of those questions that has a couple layers to it. We can think of this as the disciple-making strategy here at Victory Baptist Church, but also a personal disciple-making strategy. Each and every one of us are called to be disciple-makers. That means that we have to have some method of making disciples, some way of making disciples. And if we're not intentional about it, then we're not going to do it. So each of us should have a personal disciple-making strategy. Hopefully it's tied in with the disciple-making strategy at the church. Right. So this offers this passage offers an encouragement and a model for us when facing opposition and spreading the gospel. Now, that's kind of a repeat of the last um, application point where how does this apply to my life? Right. It is that encouragement and a model to follow. But also as a church, when we're thinking about our disciple making strategy, we're going to face opposition sometimes. But we can look at Paul's life, especially in this passage, and see hope and encouragement and a model to follow. And finally, the last question, what action do I need to take because of this understanding? Well, for me personally, I need to look into some modern writings about the gift of prophecy. I need to look into some other churches or some other denominational um, traditions and how they relate to the Spirit. So I need to kind of get outside of my comfort zone here and study a little bit and be exposed a little bit. But also, how does it, what action do I need to take? Is to pray for the courage Pray for courage that is born out of my faith in Jesus and courage to share the gospel. Pray for courage to be obedient. That's a hard one. Pray for the courage to be obedient. All right, we get to our application here. So I know we are, that whole section was application. But this application point here, um, we're trying to understand what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so as disciples... We know that there are kind of three layers to that, the knowing, being, and doing. So first, to know, know that there will be opposition. So this is a warning to us. The gospel will often be met with opposition. But this warning is not meant to be a discouragement, but a preparation. I'm not trying to discourage you from sharing the gospel by saying people will oppose it. I'm trying to help you to be prepared by saying people will oppose it. Okay? The second is to be prepared for the opposition. So pray for the courage to be obedient to Jesus. 
Pray for the courage to be obedient to Jesus' commands, even when you are met with opposition. And finally, the doing part is to share the gospel. Like Paul, even when there is opposition, share the gospel. Even when it is unpopular, share the gospel. Even when the church in Ephesus was growing, Paul shared the gospel. So even when we as a church, if we, when we see the, uh, a point of growth, we need to continue to share the gospel. When we see God's kingdom growing around us, we continue to share the gospel. Even when it might cost Paul his life, he still shared the gospel. So find your courage in Jesus to share him with those around you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I thank you so much for your word and the truth that is in your word. Lord, I pray this morning that something in this passage has spoken to each and every person in here. I pray that whatever it was, that, this, that we were all open and willing to listen, to understand. And Lord, I pray for the hard part, to be obedient to that. I pray that you will give us the courage to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And so I've come to our point of response. You can respond where you're seated, or you can come to the front, pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.